of you worshiping and connecting with us online. We're glad that you're joining us this morning. On the second Sunday of Advent, we light the candle of peace, remembering the words of Psalm 29. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives his strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. Amen. I invite you to stand and worship with us. Oh, 
Good morning. It's good to see everybody today, and welcome to those of you that are here in person and those that are joining us by live stream or later this week by video. Let's um, unite our hearts in prayer, and after we're done with prayer, then we'll dismiss the children to children's ministry. Let us pray. Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherub, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us. Restore us, O God, may your face shine upon us, that we may be saved. Gracious Father, we come before you this morning as your people. Not because of anything that we have done, but because you have showered your great love upon us in ways that we can't even imagine. And so, Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the privilege of gathering together this morning to worship you. We thank you for our brothers and sisters across the hall this morning who gathered for worship and celebration. And we pray that you would use the message there of Pastor Bill in a mighty way. We thank you for those who gathered this morning across the parking lot at Watershed who heard the word of the Lord preached to them. May your spirit use them use the message in their lives. And we thank you this morning, Lord, that we can gather together as a community, that we can sing your praises, that we can anticipate your birth, and that we can hear the preaching of your word. Please use the message to shape and to mold us. But even as we gather as your people, we gather with cares and concerns. Our hearts go out to the Plagamar family, and the passing of Jerry this past weekend. Our hearts go out to each other as we bear one another burden, as we care for each other. As we discuss events in our lives, as we discuss events in our community, in our world, Lord, all we can pray is, O come, O come, Emmanuel, come quickly, please, because the things that are going on around us are hard to make sense of. Even as we navigate the current surge in COVID, let us ask, what are you teaching us, Lord? How are you shaping us? How are you molding us? How are you forming us to be more faithful disciples of Jesus Christ? And so, Lord, we pray, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Come, Lord. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. And so, Lord, may we continue to encourage May we continue to build each other up. May we continue to help each other shoulder the burdens of life in a way that bears witness to the life-giving message of the gospel, not only in our community, but to those who do not know you. We ask this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all. The children can now be dismissed to children's ministry. And I'll invite Pastor JB up now to open God's word for us. Thanks, Darwin. And good morning, Fusion. It is good to be back. And I uh, just want to say thank you uh, for your kind words and support as uh, I was gone last weekend to uh, celebrate the life of uh, my grandmother. And I can't even say grandmother, I got to say Nani, because she was Nani uh, to us. And uh, it was a rich time of remembering. And uh, just seeing uh, her church family, which had changed in the last five years as she moved in with my aunt and uncle. And uh, it was a rich time. So thank you. To quickly just kind of shift gears to something a little more lighthearted, uh, I was picking Bryson up um, from school this, uh, this, this past Friday. And we're driving back, and, and he's, he, he talks a lot, and that's good. Um, but he started talking about uh, how he wanted to go up into the sky and through the clouds. And I'm like, you know, what are you getting at, buddy? And he's telling me he wants to, you know, be into space. I'm like, oh, you want to be an astronaut? He's like, I don't know. There's so many things I want to be. I can't be all of them. And I said, well, now I'm curious. Tell me, what do you want to be? And he's like, oh, an explorer. Uh, a paintist, uh, you know, uh, ast I'm like, astronaut, yeah, and he's naming all these things. And so then I said to him, I'm like, well, what about a pastor? He's like, no, that's boring. All you do is preach. <laughs> so hopefully we can have a little more fun uh, this morning <laughs> than what he thinks of. 
Um, but last week, uh, also just thank you for welcoming a good buddy of mine, Lewis and uh, Lewis Ford from uh, First Reformed Church, one of my best friends. And all these pictures of me and Lewis started popping up on my Facebook feed. And uh, I, I trust he preached the gospel and brought a message of hope. Um, also, just to be clear, my knees are fine and they're original. So um, anyway... <laughs> Last week, we, d- we did start Advent, and uh, Advent consists, again, of the four Sundays leading up to Christmas Day, Christmas Day, which is on Saturday this year. Uh, Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming or arrival. It is the season of the year that we anticipate uh, the coming of the Messiah, and we kind of do that in two ways. We, we join with the people of Israel and remember their waiting on the Messiah, but we also step into our present and anticipate Christ's return. As Pastor Darwin prayed, we pray, come Lord Jesus and look forward to his return when all things will be made new. Four weeks marked off by four candles, uh, each candle having a theme. Last week was hope, this week we lit the peace candle, uh, and then on Christmas we light the Christ candle. Uh, For Advent, we've been camped out in uh, the genealogy of Jesus as told by the gospel writer of Matthew. And so for four Sundays, uh, we are going to be camped out in this first chapter of Matthew. And thankfully, I'm grateful, Lewis was gracious enough or Uh, He just obliged and read the genealogy in its entirety and uh, reading through all of those names. And so we're not going to read it in its entirety every week, uh, but this week what I really want to do is just zero in on verse 17. And we're going to talk about the timing of God and how God's timing brings us peace even today. And so our scripture reading this, this morning will be Matthew 1. We'll be reading verses 1 and then verse 17, so the first and last verse of that passage. And then we'll also be turning to Galatians 4, reading verses 4 and 5. As we turn to God's word, if you're willing and able, I'd invite you to stand as we honor God as he speaks to us through his word this morning. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then, of course, Matthew goes on to list Jesus' genealogy, starting with Abraham, through David, through the exile, through Jesus himself. And then we pick up at verse 17. Matthew writes, Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. And then Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you, God, how your word is like honey to our lips. Your word is a lamp unto our feet. Lord, your word gives us truth that guides our way. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would enlighten our path, that you would give us hope where we need to receive hope this morning, that you'd give us challenge where we need challenge in all things, Lord. May you direct our hearts and our minds to the good news that is found in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. There is a, a common saying, and I don't actually know where it originates from, but the saying goes like this, timing is, so you know it, timing is everything. A, a saying that is true for a lot of different circumstances and activities in life, uh, one of those activities where timing really is everything is the sport of surfing. Any surfers out there? 
Anyone ride those wicked swells on Lake Michigan? No. How many of you have ever tried surfing? There you go. Some more people have tried surfing. And if you've tried surfing, then you are well aware that timing is everything. You've got to catch that wave just at the right moment in order to ride that thing back into shore. Now, Yvonne, my wife, is from Southern California. I moved out there in 2005. And so for two years, we lived and we dated. We were in love. We still are in love, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah I hope so, yeah. And, uh, and so for two years, we lived in Southern California. Uh, I'm from Wisconsin. And this might surprise you, but in those two years, I became, no, I didn't, I didn't become a surfer. I didn't. Just kidding. Uh, that does not surprise you. I, I'm not a surfer, but one of the things that we did do was we'd go to the beach and we'd do body surfing. Now, how many of you have body surfed? That's a little more common, right? Now, being from the Midwest and not really knowing much about the Pacific Ocean, when I moved out there, we heard about this world-famous body-surfing beach south of Newport Beach called The Wedge. Has anyone heard of The Wedge? Maybe, maybe a little bit. The, the Wedge is a world-famous body-surfing beach. There is a, a picture of The Wedge. You can see on the, behind the wave, there's a jetty rock wall. And basically what happens at The Wedge, it's on the southernmost peninsula of Balboa Peninsula, is and when a swell comes, comes in at right, the right timing and the right direction, that first wave bounces off the jetty wall and hits the second wave, creating this like wedge wave that crashes close to the shore. So... Midwestern boy, like, yeah, let's go to the wedge. You know, like, we know what we're doing. And so we jump in the water with a bunch of guys, and, and this swell, I mean, on, on just a small day, these waves are intimidating, and you have to hit it right. You get in the water, and you, I mean, you have to time, your, time it, because when that wave crashes, you need to dive under it, and then you have to get far enough, far enough out into the water so that you're not in the crash zone. I was going to share a story about Yvonne in the crash zone, but I thought better of it. We're not going to talk about that, okay? The, all that is to say is if you, are, if, you, if you hit that wave at the wrong time, you're either going to miss the wave and it's going to go right by you, or you're going to be in front of that wave and that wave is going to pick you up and slam you down on the sand. I'm older, I'm wiser now, and I will not go in the wedge water anymore. Can I get an amen to that? Wisdom with age. Timing is everything. It's especially true with surfing or body surfing or other sports like that where you have to catch a wave at just the right time or, or, or ski, like water skiing where you got to just have just the right timing on that. But it's also true for life. It's also true for life. My guess is many of us can think of instances where if timing was just a little bit different, a moment or even the course of our lives could have been drastically changed for the better or for the worse. This morning our text directs our attention to this idea of time and timing. How? A genealogy ends, that ends with verse 17. The genealogy ends and highlights this number 14. 14 generations. Now 14 must signify something about timing and intention and because you don't mention, you don't draw our attention to 14, 14, 14 unless there is a specific reason to do so. Right? We don't draw attention to random numbers. No, Matthew is trying to do something in this genealogy around this idea of 14 generations. And so what is those 14 generations? What is that all about? What's the significance of 14 generations? Well, Matthew begins this bi biography of Jesus with a genealogy, which if in the ancient world is not all that unusual. In many ways, in the ancient world, listing a, a genealogy was a way of listing your credentials, right? You, you say, why is this Jesus so important? And Matthew's saying, well, let me tell you. Let me tell you the family he comes from. And so a genealogy would be a common thing to do in ancient literature. But why does Matthew conclude this genealogy with a summary of in verse 17? There were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile, 14 from exile to the Messiah. The answer, to answer this question, we first need to understand a little bit more about 
ancient genealogies and how they're different from what we call ancestry uh, or genealogies, I guess, in our modern context. Let's talk a little bit about genealogies. Ancient genealogies and modern ancestry are different. See, in our modern context, we obsess about accuracy. We obsess about proper record keeping. When we're tracing our family tree, we want to get all of those details precise and accurate and correct. Because, why? Because we want to know certain things, right? I want to know that my great-grandmother, Josephine, born Sheberto, moved to the United States when she was five years old from the country of Italy. Why do I want to know that? Because you have eight great-grandparents, which, which would make me 12.5% Italian. I'm a lot of Dutch, but I'm also Italian, and I want you to know that, right? I got some Italian in me. We want to know this because we want to know the facts, because getting the facts right is the point. But in ancient genealogies, getting all those details precise and accurate is not the point. And why do we know this? How do we know this? Is because Matthew is, is telling us something. Now before we get to that, there is something to say that, that it is kind of the point because Matthew is wanting us to get some facts correct. He wants us to know that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was an actual human being who walked the face of this earth Jesus Christ is, is not some fairy tale or legend. He is a man who walked this earth grounded in history, grounded in a family line. But the point is not all the facts and all the details. And we know this because there's some things missing in the genealogy. There's some facts that have been changed and tweaked. If ancestry, if our modern idea of ancestry was the goal, if this was an ancestry.com report or a 23andMe report or even your fourth grade family tree, anyone do a family tree in fourth grade? I think it was fourth grade. But if, that was, if this was a family tree and you were getting a grade, you'd maybe get a B plus because there's some things that aren't completely accurate, okay? Here's, here's a couple of the things in the details. The first thing, verse eight, if you have your Bibles open, uh, in verse 10, there's two names that um, in the English, it's written as the, the person in history. But if you read the Greek, the letters have been tweaked a little bit. And the king Asa, in verse 8, was, is actually in the Greek, reads Asaph. Asaph, the Psalms, one of, the one, one of David's musicians who wrote some of the Psalms. The other one is verse 10. If you look at the Greek, the, the, the king Ammon he changes the N to an S, and it's in the Greek it reads Amos. Amos, the prophet in the scriptures. Is Matthew trying to tell us something about Jesus being a fulfillment of the scriptures? These changes are intentional, right? The second thing, that there's, 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 there's something left out. The second thing, he leaves out at least three sons in these, this family line. We know that because we have this family line in the Old Testament, right? The book of Kings. And there's at least three kings who have, are not mentioned in the genealogy because accuracy is not the point. In fact, when you say this person beget another person, it doesn't mean father, son. It could be father, grandson, great grandson. So, but there's three names missing in the genealogy, at least. And the third thing is, if you were actually to count up the different names listed in these three sets, the third set, starting at verse 12 through verse 16, if you were to count up the fathers, you'd actually count 13. Which begs the question, who's the 14th father? We'll get there Christmas, right? There are all kinds of things that Matthew is doing with this genealogy to tell us something more about Jesus than simply his family tree, which is genius, which is beautiful, and which is enlightening and enlivening and is exciting. Matthew is communicating something more about Jesus, and that's really what this series is about. We're going to point out some of those details and some of those things. Next week, we're going to talk about why does, why does he mention four women in this genealogy in a patriarchal society? We'll talk about that. But this week, this week, we want to focus on verse 17 and what is up with the number 14. You ready to dig in? All right. Ancient literary technique, 14. There's an ancient literary technique uh, in the ancient world called gematria. Gematria. Gematria is, it goes something like this. Uh, in, in our, you have uh, the alphabet, right? 
we don't have numbers as, as per se, but let's say you have the alphabet, let's say our, our own alphabet, each letter represents a number. So A is one, B is two, C is three, D is, you got it, right? So gematria is this ancient technique where the letters of the Hebrew alphabet represent certain numbers. I have it listed right up there. And so this was, the number 14 was a gematria for David. And here's how it works. David, uh, Hebrew is written from right to left. And, and so David, and also Hebrew, is, is focused on the consonants. Vowels are just vowel pointings, those little dashes. Those are the vowels on the, the Hebrew script there. But Hebrew centers around the consonants. So the name David is three letters long. Dalit, Vav, Dalit. Dalit is four. Vav is six. Dalit is four. If you add up, Six plus four plus four, you get 14. So the number 14 is a gematria for King David. So when Matthew's original audience, Jewish audience, heard the number 14, their minds would have directly thought, oh, David, 14, David, that signifies David. A little modern par parallel. Uh, we have some numbers that, that, that mark out different people. If I were to say to you, TB12, who am I talking about? Tom Brady. If I were to say CP3, Chris Paul. Thank you, Jeff. I appreciate it. PG13, and NBA fans, Paul George. Yeah, okay. So, so numbers represent people, even in some circumstances here. But for the ancient Jewish audience, 14 would be King David. So one of the things that Matthew is doing here is emphasizing, right? There's no bold font. There's no memes to kind of bring emphasis. So you do repetition. You have other strategies to bring emphasis to the text. And so when he's saying 14, he is emphasizing what we talked about last week, that Jesus is the son of David. Who's the 14th name on the genealogy? Any guesses? David, yeah, right? So he's emphasizing that Jesus is the son of David, that he is the Messiah, he is the one who is to come. He is the one we have been waiting for. He is the one who is the hope for Israel and the hope for the world. 14. But there's another layer, okay? So we're gonna keep peeling back the onion. The second layer here is related to the number 14. It's the number seven. What's seven plus seven? 14. Does seven have significance in the scriptures? Yeah, a lot of significance, right? First of all, seven is the number of completeness or perfection, which of course comes from the seven days of creation, that God created all that we see in seven days, that things were complete and finished and good. So seven has this meaning of completeness carried out through the scriptures. The other significance of sevens, uh, how many days of the week? Seven. What's the seventh day? Sabbath, right? Sabbath, now in Christ, we've, we've made our holy day the Lord's day, the day Jesus Christ was, was raised from the dead, but in the Jewish circles, Sabbath is still Saturday. It's the seventh day of the week. You dig a little deeper into scripture, there's something called the, seventh, the Sabbath year, right? The seventh year uh, was the Sabbath year, and in the Torah, there was instructions that you let the, the land rest, now there's some wisdom, right? Because you don't want to strip the earth of all its nutrients. So you let the land rest on the Sabbath year. On the seventh Sabbath year, what's seven times seven? 49. I'm, uh, some math, right? Some math. But, and the year after the 49th is the 50th year. The 50th year in the scriptures was the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee was kind of this, this social construct, this social law that, that reset the table, if you will. So on the year of Jubilee, slaves would be released, debts would be forgiven, lands would be returned to their ancestry, right? And that was the year of Jubilee. So seven, sevens follow, follow the 14 generations. So in the passage, we have 14 generations that hit three different times. Three 14s is how many sevens? Six, which means that Jesus is the start of the seventh seven. Are you with me? And so with Jesus, Jesus, which, which Matthew is trying to communicate is that Jesus is the one, the Messiah, the long-awaited son of David who would come to bring the final Sabbath rest. 
Jesus would come as the seventh seven to bring final jubilee, which was peace, shalom, returning things to the way they are supposed to be. Matthew is communicating something beautiful about who Jesus is in this number 14 and number seven, that Jesus Christ is the long-awaited Messiah, the hope for the world, but that Jesus Christ is also the seventh seven, the one who would bring perfect rest and perfect peace to his people. Shalom. Wow. That's pretty cool. Anyone else? Anyone? Yeah, okay, just give me a little nod, maybe. Humor me. That's the first thing Matthew's doing with this number, seven, number 14. But there's something else about a genealogy that's being commuted here. Is Matthew wants, us to pl- wants to place Jesus' arrival in history. That Jesus came at a particular moment in history, which reminds us and tells us that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, has come at just the right time. That God's timing here in sending the Messiah is perfect. Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5. Paul writes these words. We read them already. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. In Galatians 4, the Greek phrase translated here, the set time had fully come, comes from two Greek words, pleroma, and chronos. Now you probably recognize the, the second word. Chronos is the word for time. It's where we get the word chronology. And so chronos is, is, is like sequential, uh, linear time. And the, word, the, the, the adjective there, pleroma, means full, filled up, fulfillment, complete. And so in a way, what, what Paul is saying in Galatians 4 is that when all of time had been filled up, had kind of come to a crescendo moment at just the right time in linear history, Christ came into this world. Later on, Paul's writing to the church in Rome, and Paul writes these words, Romans 5, verse 6. He says this, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. The word here translated as right time is not chronos, it's kairos. It's a different Greek word that is beyond linear uh, time. A kairos moment is, is a significant moment in history that is in some ways above chronological time. And so in this moment, Jesus comes in linear time when things have come to a point and there is this kairos opportune moment of coming to a head of time on this world that Jesus comes into our world. Jesus comes at just the right time. You see, God's people, think about this, have been waiting for a Messiah. There's the 400 years of silence. God's people have been waiting in exile for almost 500 years. They had returned to the land, but they were still living in exile because occupied nation, occupied nation. They didn't have freedom in the promised land. They've been waiting close to 500 years, kind of close to 490 years, which is 70 times seven, and there's a whole other thing that you could explore. We're not gonna get into what is that, what isn't that. But Matthew's genealogy and the apostle Paul assures us that Jesus Christ came at just the right time in history when all of time had come fully. Jesus' timing is perfect. Perfect timing. And we see evidence of this in the scriptures, but we also see evidence of God's perfect timing in sending Jesus Christ the Messiah in history. Biblically, there's all kinds of biblical prophecies that are fulfilled when Jesus comes at just this moment. One example. Jesus is born in the town of Bethlehem. Where was Jesus from? Nazareth, right? Nazareth. Why, he, but, but because Jesus came at this moment when there was a census being taken, Joseph had to go to the town of Bethlehem. Therefore, Jesus, this prophecy is fulfilled just the right time. But it also works out in history too. Because the people of God in, the, in, in ancient Israel, they're occupied by the Roman Empire, right? 
They are under oppressive, an oppressive regime, the Roman Empire. But because of this time in history, do you remember this past summer we looked at the book of Acts and, and how the gospel, the church of Jesus Christ, just exploded across the Roman Empire in like a generation. That is wild. But what set that up? We talked about it this summer. There was the exile, right? So there were Jewish communities scattered throughout the Roman Empire. The first stop that Paul would make in Gentile territory was the synagogue, right? Because there was an established Jewish community all throughout the Roman Empire. That's the first thing. The second thing is during the Roman Empire, you have a globalized world, right? And so the Roman Empire had built roads and infrastructure connecting all of these cities, roads that the Apostle Paul and the other apostles would travel on to reach people far away. And not only that, but the Roman Empire had one common language. And so you'd, you'd go all the way to Asia Minor or Asia, and you'd go all the way to Greece, and you'd speak Greek, and people would understand. These things allowed for the early church to explode in a generation across the Roman Empire, Jesus Christ came at just the right time, biblically but also historically. And here's our word for us this morning. Jesus Christ, right, the Messiah, the promised son of David, the one who came to bring perfect rest and perfect peace, came at just the right time. His timing is perfect. And the word for us today is that even in our lives today, God, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, his timing is perfect. He's never late. He's never early. He's always right on time. The theological kind of word that kind of captures this truth is, is sovereignty. Our God is sovereign. God's sovereignty how do we know this is true? The scriptures are just filled with passages that remind us of the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty is this idea that God is in control, that he watches over our coming and going, that all of our days are written in God's book as Psalm 139 says on the screen. God's sovereignty, this idea that God watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven, right? Those are the words of Heidelberg Catechism, question and answer number one. And then finally, these words from Romans 8, 28, which assures us that we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. What these passages remind us is, is friends, we are, we are not like chaff blowing in the wind, right? At the whim of, of just a cruel and random disordered world. We are not like some Midwestern punk stranded in the middle of the wedge because he's caught in the surf, desperate to try to find a way out. No, God's word assures us that we are held in the firm and secure hands of Almighty God. The same God who sent his son, Jesus Christ, the prince of peace, into this world 2,000 years ago. The same God who promises that our Lord Jesus Christ will come again and restore perfect peace and rest in this world. Our God holds us in the palm of his hand. And this truth and this theology, this doctrine, if you will, of God's sovereignty offers us peace. And sometimes we experience that perfect timing of God. Sometimes we look back, mostly God's sovereignty is seen in the rearview mirror, right? His sovereignty. I, just this past week, you know, just meeting with family and because uh, sometimes we, we see God's sovereignty, we see God's hand. This past week, my family got together. We're remembering all these stories about my nani. Um, and one of the things that we, we talked about was just God's gracious timing and when, she, when he called her home. Because a week before she went to see, be with Jesus, a week prior to that, my mom and dad and my aunt and uncle who she stayed with were on a trip, a girl's trip that they had postponed for the last year. They were gone. 
and there was a dear woman who watched my grandma um, when they were gone, but, but they were able to return. And less than a week before she passed, my mom and dad were there and got to spend the night and evening with my nani. And then the, her last day here on earth, my aunt was right by her side and was able to sing songs, was able to, to pray with her um, as she stepped into the life to come. Sometimes we, we look back at our lives and we can see God's sovereignty. We can see how God's hand is working and orchestrating to bring things together in beautiful and amazing way, bringing the right people into our lives at just the right time, keeping us from harm, all these things. We, we see God's sovereignty. But what each of us also know is that so often we, we look back on our lives and we don't see. And we don't understand. Sometimes our world is turned upside down because of a sudden loss. And once again, our community is, has been rattled by a sudden loss. Tragedy strikes, you feel like you just got blindsided by a giant wave that just slammed you on the ground. And you're struggling to just keep your head above water and, and, and you're just wrestling, how is this God's timing? How is God sovereign in this? Or on the other side of that, it's not God, something's happening too quickly, it's, it's we're in a season of waiting. Our faith stretched thin in a season of waiting, we're, we're, we're crying out for God to move. He just feels so late. We're crying out for God to move in a miraculous way. We're, we're praying desperately for healing, praying for deliverance, praying for breakthrough, praying for reconciliation in that relationship that's broken and fractured. And you're like, come Lord Jesus, make this right. Prince of peace, come. God feels distant. And we're asking, we're wrestling, God, are you sovereign? We hear things like God's timing is perfect. We're like, well, that's not my experience. And to be honest, there's, there is no theological argument that's going to bring us out of that tension. It's just a tension that's there because we live in a broken world. But it's in that that we lean into the scriptures. The scriptures that give us space to lament. The scriptures that, that give us permission to question, to call out, say, God, I don't understand. How long, O oh Lord? we lean into those same scriptures that give us these words of truth, these words of assurance, words of doctrine, if I can share that word. Because friends, our peace is not found in our circumstances. But our peace is found in the Prince of Peace. The one who Matthew shares came in 14 generations, the one who came to bring perfect rest and perfect peace. Our peace is found in him and it's only in that knowledge that we can read these words from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We read verse six, but the words leading up to verse six, Paul speaks of this tension of finding peace in the midst of suffering and how God's working through it all. He writes this, therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Our peace is found in Jesus Christ and in this relationship, this union with Christ that is true, that cannot be taken away from us. And because of this foundation of our peace being in Christ, it allows us to continue reading and not just scoff at these words. Paul writes, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. These words are not meant to just be kind of thrown at people who are going through suffering as some salve, like these words can just make things disappear. We're not called to bury or minimize our pain. It simply means that we follow the template of every psalm of lament, almost every psalm of lament, and we cry out to God. We say, Lord, where are you? How long, O Lord? But in almost every single psalm of lament, there is this undercurrent of trust. How long, O Lord? But I will trust that what you say, God, I choose to trust that what you say is true. And friends, when we don't have the energy, when, when we find our faith fleeting, you know what we do? We lean into the body of Christ. When we are suffering, when we are questioning, and we don't have the strength or the energy to pray, we lean into the body of Christ who prays on our behalf. When we're wondering, we lean into one another. Our peace comes in knowing that Emmanuel, God is with us. God will not leave us. Whether we're in the crashing waves, we're in the turbulent wind, he is there. He is here. He is our peace. You join me in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Your word, Lord, which reminds us of your truth. That, Lord, even when we, we cannot see, even when we do not experience, Lord, the truth remains that you are faithful. You are good. And you are at work through all things to bring about your good. And Lord, we know this. We know this most powerfully in the example of your son, Jesus Christ. Because Lord, our hearts center on the gospel, Lord Jesus, that you came into this broken world, Emmanuel, you stepped into our brokenness. brokenness. And Lord, your journey here on earth led you to the cross. And Lord, it was in that moment when everything seemed lost, when it seemed that death had won, Lord, you stepped out of that empty tomb and you brought life out of death. And because, Lord, you did it 2,000 years ago, Lord, we choose to trust that you can bring life out of every circumstance we might face today. Doesn't mean we understand. It doesn't mean we don't grieve or question, but Lord, you are with us in it all. We thank you for that gift. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our peace. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand and worship with us.
the coming of the day of the Lord. In the wild places, prepare a straight path for him. Lead lives of holiness and godliness. Strive to be found at peace. And speak freely of the Lord's comfort and promise. And may our shepherd gather you in loving arms. May Christ Jesus reconcile justice and peace within you. And may the Holy Spirit bring you into the life of God. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. of thee. 